Zachary Bartel is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attached to it. Our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints Come Marching In, The Power of Faith and the Reality of Evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. After years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end of And the 2015 Carol Award for a debut novel, is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. It's probably cause for concern whenever a man of the cloth says he loves the idea of a cult following even if he's not stockpiling ammunition or promising that an alien ship hidden behind the blinking lights of the sewer treatment plant will beam us up into a celestial home where the sunny days do nothing to melt the milkshake swimming pools, there's some danger there, I think. Many churches with enormous, even worldwide followings are really not built on the gospel, but on a cult of personality, and many have cult-like tendencies. But you don't need to worry when you hear this man of the cloth tell you that I love the idea of a cult following, because not only do I lack the enormous worldwide platform, I've been told that I don't even have much of a personality to begin with. Anyway, in my mind, cult following indicates something small but intense, not enormous. Uh, and I know that different people have different views on the topic of what really constitutes a cult following, and it's a word that's used in different ways. Is it a film or book that was originally unappreciated but later gained a dedicated and unusually ardent fan base? Does it simply describe a product of any kind in which the customer base forms an actual community, like owners of Saturn cars all coming together in Nashville? Clearly, there weren't enough Saturns being sold to, to keep on making them, but I've heard that people all these years later still get together around being an owner of a Saturn. Or does it describe people who would rather die than betray a book or movie or product? If that's the case, then iPhone users are largely a cult following, even though like 5% of the world's population has one. To me, though, when applying it to a creative work, which, at least according to Wikipedia, is the formal definition of cult following, we're talking about a small but loyal and zealous group of enthusiasts. But what happens is over time, like with plot hole and paradigm shift, cult following has ironically become way overused as a term. Instead of describing a small and passionate group of enthusiasts, anything that's really popular is said to have a cult following. Game of Thrones is said to have a cult following. Seriously, literally 25 million people watch that show. So by my definition, it can't be a cult following, not if it's appreciated by a huge audience, not if it's mainstream. Star Wars is said to have a cult following. And yes, in a sense, there is kind of a cult group within the broader fan base, which percentage-wise is, is a small core group of people who go completely over the top about it. But no, by my definition, it doesn't pass muster. Or the Lord of the Rings movies. Granted, there is a huge and well-deserved following to those movies, as there is to the books. But it's a huge and well-deserved regular following. 
I mean, they made $870 million. If you want to see a movie by Peter Jackson that has a cult following, you're going to have to go back to his 1993 whacktastic zombie film, Dead Alive, which must be watched in its original unrated format to really appreciate, and only by twisted people, and certainly never by children. As far as books go, I submit that the words cult following should almost never be applied to a New York Times bestseller. An example of a book that does have a cult following, one of my favorite books in the world, which I've read with my my nine-year-old son now multiple times, is Son of Interflux, written in 1986 by Gordon Corman, who is an incredibly prolific author with a ton of commercial and critical success. He's written 91 or 92 books with numerous books coming out this year all of which will be commercial and critical successes. But this particular book, Son of Interflux, came out in 1986, and it's now out of print. And I remember a dozen years ago being on the reader forums on his then rather new website discussing this 1986 book in 2005 with a bunch of other people in a way where we were quoting the book, making in-jokes, in-references, dropping phrases and terms from the book in our ordinary conversation. And then last week, I went and did the same thing. Still a small group, but an incredibly ardent group of people who are into this self-same book to the point where they want to kind of inhabit that world together. I've sometimes tried to convince myself that my book, 42 Months Dry, had sort of a cult following. I've even, I've even said that in radio interviews, and, and it's probably too small of a number in the sales department to warrant it, and you can't even get it anymore. I'm sort of saving the concept and the basic execution for something, but I'll tell you more about that in a later ep. All the same, I'd say every other month, sometimes once or twice in a month, I'll get emails about this book that came out seven years ago and has been unavailable for two, three years, and people will be asking where they can get another copy of it, or if there's going to be a sequel, or what's going on with it. Is is this universe going to continue? And I really like that. I really do. It doesn't bother me that this is a very small group of people. In fact, I kind of like that, too. It reminds me a bit of my other podcast, which I co-host with Ted Cluck, whose whole career is kind of built around the idea of of cult following. In that podcast, we again and again refer to ourselves as being a niche of a niche. And we say niche instead of niche, not because we're pretentious, but because it's the right way to say it. And we describe it that way because there's kind of a community aspect around the thing. When we were looking at one of our first corporate sponsors for the the podcast, it was a, a energy drink called Guru Energy Drink. And they looked at the, the numbers and they, they said, well, you've got a lot of feed hits, but you don't have a huge platform on Twitter and you don't seem to have uh, thousands and thousands of people tuning in to all of your episodes. But we said, no, look closer. Look at how people interact with each other and with us. Look how when we go three weeks without releasing an episode, which we randomly will do, people start tweeting, where's the next one? And then someone else will jump on that, say, yeah, I'm going into withdrawal. And it's all stupid and in good fun and, and goofy. But there was a certain cult following aspect to it that caused them to get on board with us. Now, with cultural relics, many things that start out a cult following have a tendency to grow until they no longer make the cut. 
Not unlike how an actual cult, where everyone can fit their sleeping bags in one compound, can have a tendency to grow into a worldwide religion. And for me, that's a little bit frustrating when it happens, and I recognize that that's sort of hipster territory, but I just stopped wearing cargo shorts, and I'm definitely not a hipster. Actually, I still have two pair, and, and, I, and I wear them sometimes. So believe me when I say this may be a character flaw, but it's, it's not that. Uh, in 1999, my roommate and I went to Blockbuster and rented a VHS tape that said it was a Blockbuster exclusive. Now, usually this meant a crummy movie made on a shoestring that would be so thoroughly forgotten. Bullethead is an example of, of one that I sort of remember renting and just being super disappointed. But this one was called The Boondock Saints. And we watched it and said, oh my goodness, this this is awesome. It's got like the religious stuff we're into and the edgy kind of violent imagery and and the post-Tarantino sort of non-chronological timeline thing going. And I, I called my wife, who was at the time my fiance, and I said, you got to come here and watch this. So she drove to my apartment and we immediately started it again. And I was so into this movie. And I even put on IMDb that it was my favorite movie at the time. A couple years later... The maker of that movie, Troy Duffy, who weirdly enough I kind of mentioned in an aside last episode, emailed me from ColecoBase at AOL.com and said that he had been flipping through the reviews of his movie and saw that it was my favorite and he wondered if there was any questions he could answer for me. So we had this back and forth, probably 20 emails. He thought it was hilarious that I was a seminary student and into his movie. And that went on for a while. Of course, after that, the thing grew into a true cult following, which grew bigger and bigger until it, well, maybe we should say that it has become kind of a cult classic. Maybe that's the distinction. The cult classic is something that's been around long enough for the cult following to grow and, and kind of, pardon the term, but evangelize and become much, much bigger and yet still has kind of some of the charm of that initial cult following. It's almost certain that I couldn't have an email conversation with Troy Duffy today after a sequel and a reboot in the works and all sorts of merchandise and and thousands and thousands of people getting tattoos and all this sort of thing. And honestly, the cult following as it exists now, is it's got kind of a different vibe to it than it had in the beginning. In the back of my mind, I sort of feel like they didn't earn it by being there from the beginning, and I recognize that is starting to, to kind of inch toward insufferable hipster territory. So what does any of this have to do with the topic of this podcast? Well, it speaks to why I'm writing the sequel to that first traditionally published book, despite its current position there at the cusp of the bargain bin and putting it out through an indie label. I've already told you how, since the original publisher of Playing Saint passed on it, uh, nobody else wanted to, to do the sequel to a modestly performing novel whose rights were all owned by the competition. And yet, I had started writing it at that point, and, and once that train has been push-started, there's no slowing it down. I have to write it at that point. And I'm telling myself at that point that there's demand. You see, I've got a subfolder in my author email account that is full exclusively of letters from readers 
telling me not only that they loved playing Saint, but that they really wanted to see a sequel, another book with Parker Saint. Looking at it this morning, I was sort of disappointed to see that there were exactly 71 emails. It seemed like there had been more, but I think there was, for me, the assumption that those 71 people who actually typed an email and found where to send it and filled out at the time what was like a form you had to fill out in order to to send me feedback probably represented many, many more who, yes, would love to see a sequel, but didn't go through all that song and dance. Then on top of that, there were the questions I'd fielded at book events and writing conferences where I would say quite frequently people would ask me, when is there going to be another novel with Parker Sane? In fact, when the second book was about to come out, a number of people said, this is another book with Parker, right? And when I said no, they were disappointed. Although I kind of feel like The Last Con was at least as good, but that's neither here nor there. In other words, I had convinced myself this was a book worth writing and putting out, worth going through all the trouble and and using finite resources, including creative resources, to put it out because the Parker Saint brand had something of a cult following. And the cult following has never been more powerful than it is now. I think of... Arrested Development, one of the best comedies that has ever been created. There's this DVD extra in which David Cross, wearing a full Mrs. Doubtfire-esque woman's bodysuit, delivers this rant about how their ratings continue to slide despite the fact that the show wins award after award after award for writing, for acting, for every aspect. And he suggests that, therefore, the problem does not lie right here, gesturing at the suit, but with marketing. And everyone in the room laughs and cheers, except they still canceled the show and even scaled back the last season from 18 to 13 episodes which is often the reality you have to deal with when you decide to blame someone else for your lack of numbers. But then, a couple years later, the show came back for another season on Netflix, not on broadcast TV. It was back by popular demand. Now, obviously, my demand is much less, much less popular. But It was still the ability to bypass the ordinary metrics that determine what gets made and even the ordinary channels through which it's distributed in order to bring it back for the faithful as a modern cult classic. In the back of my mind, I'm holding on to the idea that maybe I can hope for something on a much, much smaller scale, but still qualitatively the same thing. For many members of true cult followings, the smallness of the fan base is actually a source of pride. Like, I found this, I discovered this, and I'm one of the select few, therefore, who gets the references to G. Gavin Gunhold, or Spacker Dave, or Sanctuary Bugs Deprived. Authors, on the other hand, usually want the zeal of a cult following in their readership, but also the scope of a massive fan base which brings with it a certain level of of fame and wealth. But I can honestly say I'd rather have a smaller, more dialed-in readership who wants to discuss my books and is anxiously awaiting the next one than a multitude of consumers who buy out of habit, read, and forget, just wanting something that will occupy their thoughts and their time for a few hours. Because it seems to me that a lot of people are buying novels by household name authors who are just churning them out 
but never rereading, and probably unable to even describe what a given book was about once they've read a couple more, much less quote their favorite lines from it. Playing Saint All Souls Day is for those 71 people who emailed me, some of them at 2 a.m. to tell me they just finished Playing Saint and they really want to read another book like it. It's for the people, probably fewer than 71, who've come up to me at book events and writing conferences and asked, hey, is there going to be another Parker Saint novel? There totally is. And I don't begrudge the publishers who looked at the raw numbers and said, yeah, we're not doing a sequel to that book. I'm just glad I live in an age that lends itself to cult followings, even small ones, where books can be printed on demand as they're ordered or recorded to an MP3 file and instantly beamed out to the four corners of the world by a podcast. Speaking of which, let's get back to the story of Trenton Marsh and the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch, the chief ambled over and took off his hat. Soup kitchen was broken into during the night. Looks like the same people we've been dealing with. Trenton examined a picture of two dozen lumberjacks sitting on an enormous felled pine. They were broad-shouldered tall men, but none of them as tall as the cross-section of the tree itself. Trenton, we aren't restoring this place for ourselves, Brian said. This is the first step in a much larger revitalization plan for Clinch Rock as a whole. But Benjamin Cassell was unlike other lumber barons. More like King Solomon. He came to the edge of riches and luxury and determined them to be worthless. The confrontation came to blows and Cassell was killed in the bedlam. So the bookkeeper, his name was Wellick, walked across the grounds to your current home, dragged Reverend Walcott out of bed in the middle of the night, brought him back here, and demanded he give Cassell a Christian burial, even before slipping his key into the lock. Trenton knew something was wrong. Dad, he called, navigating his way past several stacks of boxes and into the living room. You here, Dad? No answer. Then a thump, and another. It was coming from upstairs. Clinch, a novel, chapter 7. The disquiet in Trenton's gut prompted him to tear open a nearby box marked Garage Sports Equip. Pawing frantically through the contents, he came out with a wooden baseball bat, which he held at the ready, quietly approaching the stairs. More thumping, and what sounded like someone talking in hushed tones. It was coming from his dad's room, no doubt about that. Despite his efforts to walk lightly, the old stairs creaked and complained with every step. He paused at the top of the staircase and listened. Should he call the police station? His arms felt heavy, and he doubted if he could even swing the bat in his current state of mind. Then he heard gasping and grunting. Trenton slammed through the partially open door, weapon at the ready. No one. Wait, no. On the ground, against the wall, Chief Marsh was slumped, clutching his chest. Dad! The bat clattered to the ground, and Trenton was over the bed and at his side in a second. What's wrong? Can you breathe? His father's big hand grabbed him around the arm and squeezed. I'm calling 911. The grip tightened, and Chief Marsh shook his head fervently. Dad, you're having a heart attack or something. You need help. Not a heart attack, he managed to croak between gasps. How do you know? Water. The grip loosened. Please, he pleaded. Okay. Trenton ran to the bathroom and filled a plastic cup with water, sloshing half of it onto the floor as he returned to his father's side. Here, let me help you. He tipped the cup, and his dad took a long gulp of water. His breathing slowed a bit, and he leaned his head back against the wall, eyes closed. How do you feel? Better. 
I'll be okay. I still think we should call an ambulance. Dad snapped to attention. Absolutely not. All calls to central dispatch are relayed to the station. We'd have Barton at the front door in three minutes. Or Tango and Cash. They'd use it to hurry me out the door for good. I'm not ready for that. Trenton plopped down next to him. Maybe it's time though, right? You're running yourself ragged. I mean, if that wasn't a heart attack, what was it? It was a panic attack. He sighed. It's not the first time. Dr. Skinner taught me these breathing exercises to get through it. It works. I'll be fine. Trenton was unsure. But if you're having panic attacks and you're on the way out of police work anyway, doesn't it kind of make sense to just call it quits now? You're spread way too thin and now all these break-ins... Trent, I've been running a police department for 14 years without any issues from stress. Not an ulcer, not a single sleepless night. We've had two armed robberies, half a dozen burglaries, an arson, and even a murder in that time. I think I can handle a few vandals. It's just all the other things piling up. But it's temporary. I can do anything if it's temporary. He forced a smile. I promise. It'll be fine. Will you also promise me that you're done at the end of October? No more putting it off? Chief Marsh hesitated. No, I can't promise that. Trent clapped the cup down on the floor next to him, a little harder than he intended. Well, then will you take some personal time? A couple days at least? I'm taking Friday off, remember? Even ditching class and a deacon's meeting. I'll have a nice drive down to Grand Rapids and spend the whole day kicking back at the Stephen Branding Conference. That's not what I mean. From where I'm sitting, that guy's partially to blame. I mean, it was a good book and everything, but there's only so much one person can do. Trent's dad sat up straight. There's always more. It's just a matter of managing it. Priorities. Did you know Stephen Branding works 80 hours a week? He's optimized his sleep schedule so he only needs 4 hours a night and 3 20-minute naps throughout the day. Trenton had only heard about this maybe 30 times from his father. Yeah? And how many panic attacks does he have? Watch it, kid. I'm still your dad. Even if I'm not around as much as I should be. I didn't mean it that way. I'm just worried. Hey, don't be. Your old man's unbreakable. He smiled and gave Trenton's shoulder a reassuring squeeze. We still on for shooting Wednesday morning and breakfast at the diner? If you have the time, I wouldn't miss it for anything. He stood and helped his son to his feet. Seriously, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Let's both get some sleep. 2.13 a.m. Trenton sighed. His mind was churning and sleep was as far off as it had been two hours ago when his head hit the pillow. His usual routine of scrolling through Facebook on his phone only keyed him up all the more. The never-ending posts, the flurries of activity, only served to remind him of his father's psychic overload and added to his own. He turned off the phone, clearing the chaos from the screen, and ordered his mind to do the same thing. No such luck. His internal remote was broken such that every attempt to power down merely changed the channel from one set of worries to another. There was Dad, of course, hopefully sleeping soundly upstairs, but more likely lying awake himself, fighting down concerns about church budgets, unsolved crimes, unpleasant career transitions, a teenage son he rarely saw, and graduate classes that were quite literally Greek to him. Of course, what if he was in the throes of another panic attack, or an actual heart attack, dismissing it as something less while his body gave way? Trenton knew he had a tendency to worry too much when it came to his father's well-being, and he knew it was likely a result of losing his mom to a car accident years earlier. With only one parent left, it was only natural for Trent to fixate on the dangers of strapping on a gun each morning and responding to emergency calls. For that reason, he had been initially relieved by his father's plans to trade in the badge for a Bible. 
But now he wondered if the transition would ever really happen. And in the meantime, his dad seemed continually exhausted and distracted just when he needed his wits about him most. The remote clicked. And then there was Judith. Ever since grade school, Trenton had felt a responsibility to help her fit in and keep her from following through on some of her crazier ideas. What if she was out there right now, prowling the streets of Clinch Rock while Tango and Cash patrolled? If they crossed paths, naturally they would assume she was the culprit. Or what if she happened upon the real burglars? Sure, she was smart and tough, but she wasn't a superhero. What he needed was something to distract her from her current fixation. She wouldn't give it up outright, but he might be able to redirect her energies elsewhere. He just had to tempt her with something more appealing. Something like a weird new band that played instruments made out of reclaimed coffins, or maybe another new collection, antique Peruvian military insignia or something. But what? Judith's varied interest seemed to follow no discernible pattern. Trenton changed the channel again. Think about Zoe. A rush of puppy love and euphoria replaced the angst for a moment, followed by frazzled nerves and a low-level dread. Sure, things had gone well tonight, but he somehow knew it wouldn't last. Once she saw him at school, a tiny minnow, even in their small pond, she'd forget him and move on. The fact that her father seemed to be pulling for him buoyed his spirits once again, but that support came with a price, and Trenton was hard-pressed to imagine himself with the time and energy it would take to make a real contribution to Brian Greene's reboot Clinch Rock campaign. The prospect of a girlfriend had been all upside at camp, but camp was insulated from real life. Apart from work and school, which was only a week and a half away, he'd inherited a slew of new responsibilities over the past few months, and not just regular teenage duties like mowing the lawn, keeping the dog fed and walked, or taking out the trash. He also had to keep the laundry under control, all of it, and even bring the payments for water, power, and gas down to the utility company, lest they be shut off. Not to mention that he'd become his own cook at least half the time. All of this had initially struck him as an exciting preview of adulthood, but it was getting old, and left Trenton little time and energy for his own pursuits. Jason had been complaining all summer about how he missed the old Trenton before he, quote, went corporate, whatever that was supposed to mean. And yet, Trenton always found time for Judith. Why was his mind going back to her? Probably because it was just going in circles, he told himself, stir-crazy lying here in this bed. Forget it, there was no point in flopping back and forth from one side to the other, keyed up as he was. He flipped on his light and sat up. The first thing he saw was three tall stacks of boxes, a reminder that he had also promised his dad he'd take care of their unpacking before the summer was over, as well as a few small repairs around their new house. Progress was practically nil so far. The next thing he saw was the Insane Faith tear-off desk calendar on his nightstand, a gift from his father, of course. Since it was technically tomorrow, he decided to just own it and rip off a page, start fresh. Today's quote read, Remember... Jesus said to store up your treasures in heaven, but you can go even further than that. Pile them high. Are you focusing on your life now rather than on your life in heaven? Quit it. Stack up mountains of jewels for your crown. Then you'll see the stuff of this life for what it is. Leg irons and weights dragging you down. Trenton knocked it off the nightstand and onto the ground. This was the sort of thinking that had convinced his father to dive into the pastorate, to move them from the only home they'd ever lived in, with all of its memories, including memories of his mom. Now Trenton had the distinct feeling that he was nothing more than a weight dragging his father down. On the back of the calendar, he saw the words, Superhero Edition, and the little caped cartoon, reminding him once again of Judith. 
He decided he may as well be productive and climbed out of bed, pulling on some shorts and a t-shirt from a pile of clothes on the floor and clicking on the overhead light. There were boxes to be unpacked, but that would require decision-making and organization, and he was way too tired for that. His eyes fell to the outer walls of the room, which were covered in an ugly, knotty pine paneling. Before moving in, Trenton had received permission from the church board to remove the paneling and expose the fieldstone behind it. Maybe a little manual labor would usher him to the gates of dreamland. It took about five minutes to locate the box with the pry bar and hammer, and Trenton went to work with a vengeance, starting at the corner and working his way out. At first, the tongue and groove boards resisted his efforts, but soon they were falling away as quickly as he could insert the bar behind them and twist his hip. The stone foundation, ancient and rustic, was exactly the look Trenton wanted. He was about halfway down the longest wall when he encountered a particularly stubborn panel. It seemed to be nailed down to something, Careful to keep the noise to a minimum, Trenton picked up the hammer and began methodically knocking the bar in and prying it up. After a few repetitions, he could see behind the panel, not to the stone wall of the house's foundation, but to wood. He slowly convinced six more pieces of panel to release their hold, and was amused to find that they were all attached to one expansive piece of lumber. He ran his hand along it. Not plywood or particle board, but solid wood. He thought of the pictures of giant trees felled by lumberjacks more than a century ago. Two more slats came down before the stretch of wood ended and the block wall resumed. Rooting through the box of tools, Trenton found a tape measure and stretched it out along the dimensions of this enormous cut of wood. Seven feet tall and nine feet wide. A sudden light bulb came on, seeming to cast a warm glow in the midst of the sickly fluorescent bulbs of his bedroom. He would ask Judith to use this wood as the canvas for a mural right here in his bedroom. She'd done a mural on the cinder block wall of the art room at school. It had taken her all semester, consuming evenings and even weekends. Yes, this had the potential to distract her from capes and costumes long enough for the whole thing to blow over. Besides, it could look cool. Trenton smiled smugly at his own genius. It was perfect. In fact, it was the only thing that made sense. After all, he couldn't see how the wood had been mounted to the wall and therefore had no idea how to take it down may as well incorporate it into the decor. Then another thought crossed his mind. He could call Zoe tomorrow and tell her about the discovery. She'd insist on coming down here to see it. He'd have to clean up a little bit, but his pseudo-apartment definitely couldn't hurt his image. And she'd love to see this enormous piece of pine, probably cut at the sawmill that she and her father planned to buy and restore. Perhaps it was lack of sleep, along with the tales of conspiracy and lost treasures Brian Greene had been spinning that night, but Trenton suddenly wondered what exactly might be concealed on the other side, and for how long. A treasure map on the back of the board? A million dollars? Just a peek. He shoved the pry bar in as far as he could behind the board and pushed with all his might. No movement. A few blows from the hammer to knock it in further, and he cranked on it again. There was a snapping sound and a deep creak, and the whole thing pulled away a few inches. The first thing Trenton noticed was the air, stale and old and wet, blowing in his face. He rubbed his eyes and peered into the void. Yes, it was empty back there. Nothing but black. He grabbed his phone and thumbed on the flashlight app, directing the beam into the mysterious space behind the wall. It almost looked like there was another room back there, but he couldn't be sure. Killing the overhead lights, he again shined the beam into the void and waited for his eyes to adjust. 
His heart was now pounding in his chest, and the sense of fatigue had evaporated. The image came into focus. It was a square recess behind the wall, or perhaps a rectangle about six feet by eight feet. A secret room built right into the foundation of the house and walled off many years ago. And there was something in there. A bulky piece of furniture. A dresser, maybe? Or a desk? There were definitely drawers, three of them. And Trenton was suddenly overwhelmed with an urgent need to know what they contained. He reinserted the pry bar, about to twist his hips one more time, but stopped short. No, he wouldn't go in there. Not tonight. Despite how overwhelmingly intriguing it all was, no, because of how intriguing it was, he would save it for tomorrow. This was how he would get Judith off her superhero kick, even while satisfying her apparent hunger for intrigue and adventure. Accessing the secret room, going through the contents of those drawers, finding the answers to when and why it was walled off to begin with. She would eat it up. They would do it together. Sure, it meant another item on his already crowded plate, but it would solve a problem and take a load off his mind. Trenton grabbed his phone and shot Judith the text. Have to show you something. When do you get off work? Ten seconds later, his phone chirped with a reply. 4 p.m. Clearly, she was also up at this hour. An image of a costumed Judith perched on the clock tower of the old town hall flashed into his mind. He pushed it out. Me too, he wrote. Come over after? Sure. Great. See you then. After indulging himself with one more brief look into the mysterious room, Trenton turned off the light and crawled into bed, immediately feeling a welcome heaviness to his eyes and mind. Somehow, despite the secrets walled off just ten feet away, he drifted off to sleep. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Barbas. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me via email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended it. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you may want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 